Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 24 of Conversations with Kenyatta. I'm delighted and thrilled to have Oliver Franklin as a guest. He has a very interesting background, but I'll let him tell you more about it. Well, welcome, Oliver, to Conversations with Kenyatta. Thank you for being here. I am very, very excited because we connected uh, via Dr. Jenny Williams and a project that she worked on, I believe, with her dissertation or doctorate at Johns Hopkins related to information about the enslaved in Louisiana and, and a database related to the enslaved. But what really struck me was about you personally and why I wanted to have you on the podcast was your background. So I want to start kind of sort of at the beginning. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell me a little bit more about uh, your childhood and growing up in Philadelphia. Well, I really came to Philadelphia in 1972 following my girlfriend, who, who has been my wife since then. But I was very lucky um, as a kid. I'm the son of a minister. And my father was a Methodist minister in Baltimore and Washington. And I had the opportunity of kind of growing up, you know, surrounded by very good people or people who wanted to be very good. When I got to be in my teenage, when I got to be a young adolescent, I was surprised at how mean people could be to each other. But I was very fortunate. I grew up with a, a parents that were very literate, and we always had books in the house. Uh, my Both of my parents were college educated. My father was, of course, you know, educated besides college, and also in the seminary. And it was a very rich environment of a lot of people. Both of my parents are from Virginia. My father's family is from Buena Vista, which is near Lynchburg. And they went to Washington, D.C. before the First World War. My mother's family is from Southampton County, Virginia. And my mother and her sister went to D.C. Uh, at the Second World War in order to work for the, quote, government. And uh, very proud of that. Very, very proud by having my home state as being Virginia. But it was pretty exciting because my parents were very involved in the civil rights movement. And at the age of 12 or 13, and even younger, I was, along with other young kids, picketing for integration of restaurants, picketing to get into the theme park, which, uh, which discriminated against Black people. So I consider it unique and very sim- very much like a lot of Black kids, but for me, it was just very special as I reflect on it. So let's talk about that. We'll get to your family history later in the yeah. podcast. Yeah. But I think it's pretty interesting, at least for me, that you you were part of that that movement, right? Yeah. Picketing and uh, working against segregation. So with all of that and your family background, um, and especially being in the D.C. area, what made you decide to study at Oxford University? Like, what was the catalyst for that? Well, I, I think it started, I, I went to Lincoln University, which is in Pennsylvania. It's the oldest black college in the country, founded in 1854. And it was old fashioned, you know, it was all male. Uh, when I was there, we had about 400 fellas and I think six women who who couldn't live on campus, but who lived off campus and stayed with uh, professors. So we had, at, at that time, some women. And when I was a senior, uh, that's when the first class of women came in, so I missed it. But I did have a unique experience of participating in a program called Operations Crossroads Africa. And that mm. program was actually founded by a Lincoln man, class of 1933. 
he was a minister and he wanted to take students to Africa in the summer to work on projects. So at the age of 17, I found myself in Nyasaland, Central Africa, in 1964. And what was interesting about being there, it became independent. It became Malawi. So I'm one of the few African-American kids, young people, who was in the stadium when the Nyasaland flag went down and the Malawi flag went up. And that really impressed me to be a part of a new nation, Black nation. And at that point, I decided that I should try to study abroad if I could, and I had no idea how to do it. Uh, but fortunately, Princeton University would send in professors to teach senior classes, and I was an economics major. And I had this white guy, very waspy, you know, with the sweaters and the tweeds. And he was a cool guy, and he taught me labor economics. And one day he said to me, what are you going to do after this? And I said, well, I've applied to three law schools. Say, you want to go to law school? I said, not really. He says, why don't you go to Cambridge University? And I said, Cambridge? He said, yeah. And and to be honest, I was chicken. And I said, nah, I don't think so. He said, how about Edinburgh University in Scotland? I said, ah, that's better. So he arranged for me, this is the power of a, of elite white institution, to receive a scholarship and I showed up at Edinburgh University studying African studies. And within a month, my major tutor says, I think you should go to Cambridge. I said, hmm. Cambridge? He said, yeah, I went to Cambridge. You should go to Cambridge. And then I decided, well, maybe I should apply to Oxford. And that's precisely what I did. And I was the only American who got in on its own. And by that, I set the exam. I did well. I took an interview. I got admitted. I had no money, but I was the only, and I got money, but I was the only American of my generation, which included Bill Clinton, who went to Oxford on his own. I didn't have some pre-existing scholarship, like a Rhodes Scholarship, that mm -hmm. placed you at Oxford. Mm -hmm. And I felt good about that because it was the one time where I got in on merit. Uh, no matter how you think about it, you know, I did the exam. I did the interview. I got in like any British kid would sort of get in. So mm -hmm. it was a unique turn of phrase. Of course, I got a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship once I was in. Uh, but it was a very unique uh, way for me to get in. And I encourage kids today, just apply. You mm -hmm. never know. All they can do is say no. That's so true. But I have to ask the question, why didn't you go to Cambridge? I didn't particularly like the tutor at Edinburgh who said, oh, you should go to Cambridge. And I thought ah. to myself, hmm, I mean, he was okay, but he wasn't personable. He was disinterested. Clearly, like me, thought I was bright, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, well, I think I'd rather go to Oxford because A, there were more Americans there and there were a heck of a lot more Africans at Oxford than there were at Cambridge. And I'm imbued with, you know, African politics. And I felt it would be a much better place for me. Turned out it was. And so from your time at Cambridge and afterwards, you've been very involved with the British consulate. So yeah. how did you become involved? And the second part of this question too is what exactly is your role as honorary counsel? at yeah. the British consulate in Philadelphia. Well, one of the good things about going to British schools, like going to Lincoln University, is you make friends for life. And all of my best buds are and ladies are from either Lincoln University or Oxford University, because we were young, we dreamed together, we kept in touch, and of course with digital technologies, much, much easier. So I stayed in touch with all my colleagues in Britain, I went back and forth. I was in the investment business, so I kind of focused on Europe. I was with a firm called Fidelity Investments in Boston, which at that time was the largest investment company in America. And so I try, I stayed connected. And honorary consuls are citizens of the host country, so you've got to be an American citizen. And I call it being a junior diplomat. In other words, 
you report to the ambassador or you report to the consul general in your region. And you pretty much work with the ambassador's people and the British Foreign Office to promote Britain in the region. So I'm the first African-American to be the honorary British consul. And uh, that that's a hard thing to be the first. And fortunately, we have Sandra Morgan, who's a good sister from Cleveland. And she was appointed the British honorary consul in Cleveland. So we've got two of us in the network. There are about 18 British honorary consuls around the United States. And we spend our time sort of looking after our British citizens. You know, people get in trouble. People have visa questions. And a lot of the time is spent working with British companies that are want to do business in states or companies here that are looking to do business in Britain. And the best part of it is what I call public diplomacy. And that's going around raising the flag and and speaking at events, you know, things I like to do being the son of a minister, you know, standing in front of a crowd and talking about Britain and what it means in today's world and race in Britain and all these topics, social, economic, it's just intellectually, it's very stimulating. Well, that's, I mean, that's great just to kind of, because I was very interested in that, not only just in your background and um, from going to Oxford, but also the work that you do here in the States, you know, in the U.S. with the, the British consulate. But I do have a question, um, and hopefully I'm saying this correctly, so correct me if I am wrong, but I, I am interested in knowing what is the most excellent order of the British Empire Medal? Britain, like a lot of European countries, uh, you know, if you have a monarch, like if you have a queen or a king, they're at the top of the pyramid, no matter how you look at it, you know. If if you marry to the king or the queen, you're at the top. Your kids are at the top. Britain has a series of honors they give people. You've heard of knighthood, sir so-and-so, sir this. And, and these awards are called honors, which are given by the Queen of England uh, to people who have done outstanding service um, to the UK. And this is called the office the the officer of the british empire and the british empire medal was created in 1917 by the king to reward more people and of course there is no more british empire i mean it's called an obe which you use behind your name officer of the british empire but there is no more empire they don't know how to how to change the name of it but when people say to me, how can you accept an honor um, which has empire in it? I, I agree with them that it's, it's, it's something to be discussed. But the British Empire now is, a, is the empire of the mind, that all these British films coming out, all these British books. I mean, you look at uh, all these British actors coming to America. The empire now isn't a, isn't a place of land and slavery. I mean, it is still the legacy of that, but it isn't this physical empire. You see, it's a it's a digital empire. When I received the call from Buckingham Palace, I thought, like anyone would, that it was a joke. That if I were offered an OBE from the Queen, would I accept? Now, it comes out of the blue. So, what do you think? So, I said to General So and So. What friend of mine put you up to this? Because I knew I've got <laughs> friends that are not. They're, they're my friends and I know them. And of course, I didn't believe uh, such a thing was real. And I said, well, if, you, if this is real, have the ambassador call me. And the chap said, very well, sir, and hung the phone up. And about half an hour later, I received a phone, a phone call from the British ambassador saying, what is wrong with you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, that was so-and-so. The queen wants to offer you an OBE. And it's very rare for an American um, to receive one. So I said, of course, it would be quite an honor. So I have the name OBE uh, behind my official card. And the difference is that it's something you couldn't apply for, which was very interesting. And the social capital and social capital 
is very important in a place like the UK. It also has a lot of social capital. All of a sudden, I'm getting better tables in restaurants because they see OPE behind the name. But I take it. It's it's fun. It's fine. There's, there's no money attached like most Americans say. Well, well, how much did you get? Well, it's an honor. I mean, there's no financial uh, reward that goes with it. And believe it or not, it's a lifetime award, too. So there's no, you know, sell by date. So it, it's kind of cool in that regard. <laughs> No, it is very cool. And congratulations. Um, Thank you. So I want to actually touch on something you mentioned uh, with the British Empire and you talked about the legacy of slavery. So have you found in your work that most British universities are really investigating kind of their connection to the slave trade and slavery? Well, I think the Brits are ahead of us in, in terms of looking at their relationship to slavery. And they're ahead of they're ahead of us because the emotional investment is much less than the emotional investment is here in the United States. Uh, when you have a place like Harvard or Penn or Georgetown uh, investigate slavery, uh, they're looking at the descendants of slavery walk in the door every day. So there's a big emotional component to it. The Brits look at it as a historical event that took place that they benefited from. And therefore, they are trying to quantify, you know, how much money they made from the slave trade. The difficulty is, or let me back up, the challenge is getting the Brits to acknowledge the legacy of the slave trade as it exists today in Britain. If you look at all the data points Black people are still in the bottom decile, whether it's employment, education. The only thing Black people are not in the bottom decile is in incarceration. So you see more Black kids uh, being in jail than there are in the population. So the challenge is to get the Brits to get more emotion into the research that they're doing and translate it into policies that can really help black and brown people or black people. When you when when you say black and brown people in America, we think, you know, Hispanics, Native Americans. When you say black and brown people in Britain, you're talking Pakistanis, Indians, Chinese. It's a very broad term. And as a result, it can diminish the impact that you have with black people if you say black and brown. So I normally say black people to distinguish between brown people who are very broad and have their own set of social challenges. With the Brits or the challenge you have with getting them to reconcile, I guess, um, with the existing legacies of slavery, how is Oxford University reconciling with the transatlantic slave trade? I know there's an exhibition going on um, yeah, right now yeah. as well. Well, I went to a college. You know, Oxford is composed of colleges. It's not like Oxford University. Uh, you just can't go to Oxford University. You've got to go to a college at Oxford University. And my college was Balliol College, and it was founded in 1263 which is quite a long time when you think about it. So it's one of the oldest colleges um, in the university. And what we did, we got them to agree to look at the college's relationship to the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, Because if it's been founded in 1263 and it's still here in 2022, they clearly were involved and they accepted it. And they began to go into the archives, which is where where the history is, in the library. Everybody saves everything over there. They don't throw out anything. And they began to look at the papers, and they began to discover that, yes, uh, they got uh, funded from people who were plantation owners in Jamaica, who were plantation owners in Barbados. And... Can I say something about plantation and just get it off my chest publicly? Yes, please do. These were, they, we call them plantations, and it sounds so onomatopoetic and beautiful. But they were work camps. 
They were work camps where people weren't paid. They were work camps where people were worked to death. They were concentration camps. I don't want to confuse it with what went on in, in the Second World War. But they were as bad as, in many ways, uh, some of those concentration camps. But we call it plantations, and it sounds so nice. So thank you for allowing me to get that off my chest. I've been wanting to say that, and I will continue to say plantation. But they discovered that they had, of course, like everybody in the UK, received funds from plantation owners. They had plantation owners, kids uh, going, uh, going there, going back out into the plantation. But they also discovered, which was interesting, that there was a huge abolitionist community in the college. There were, um, uh, you know, minutes from meetings where certain tutors were upset about the slave trade, you know, sort of like we have today with college endowments where you don't want your college endowment to invest in fossil fuels. Back in the 60s and 70s, you didn't want them investing in companies that supported segregation. But there was an active movement going on in the college against it. So what I what we discovered was that the story itself was as complicated as the story we tell today. And there were people who were, who were receiving funds from the slave trade. And there were people who didn't want to receive any funds because they thought it was immoral. And so after... The college discovered this. They decided to do an exhibition on the college's relationship to the slave trade. And then they decided that they would do a film on the college's relation to the slave trade, how they reacted to it. And the last thing they decided was the big crisis now in teaching the transatlantic slave trade is in secondary school teachers getting relevant material. You just can't get the material. So they've teamed up with the Museum of the American Revolution here in Philadelphia to do a two-year teacher's seminar for teachers in Southern England, teachers here in Philadelphia, to learn and talk about the transatlantic slave trade. It's been a major event in the UK, and uh, we certainly hope that it'll become a major event in the United States as well. And for you being involved in this project, I mean, it sounds I, it sounds like a major event. And I, I did watch the film. So thank you so much for sharing that with me. Thank you for um, looking at it. Yeah, I definitely enjoy that. And but how has it felt for you to actually see this come to fruition for to see the film being made, to see them actually doing this type of work well, um, as an yeah, alum? I, I'm I got to say again. I thank George Floyd because I don't think this would have happened without George Floyd. Uh, I wrote a proposal in November of 2019 that the college should do this. They were, okay, we'll look at it. But the minute they saw George Floyd lynched on TV, you could see a whole new focus and a whole new energy going on. So I felt that, I again, our success was a result of a Black person losing their lives, in this case, George Floyd. And so I give George Floyd credit for motivating the college. And we haven't said it publicly. We have to give the lynching of George Floyd credit. So for me, it was sort of the accumulation of a lifetime of being involved in the black liberation struggle. Mm -hmm. And as I'm older and as I've moved through it, you know, from the demonstration to the black power movement to then trying to get black folks into corporate America, trying to build black wealth, trying to get literacy of all kinds, financial reading literacy, just trying to get us to the point where we will stop being a statistic and mm -hmm. stop being at the bottom decile of most of the matrices that we, social matrices that we see. And the issue is we've got to deal with slavery. Mm -hmm. If we don't deal with slavery, we will have as a writers or poets say a big hole in our heart. 
-hmm. Because unless we understand what that was about structurally and, Mm -hmm. and how we as Africans in America survived it. Now we can all talk about the music and the blues and jazz and talk about the cultural reaction to being oppressed and the fights that we've been. But what I what I really enjoy about what the fictional writers are doing, starting with Toni Morrison's beloved, of course, is the emotional terrain of what it means to be a non-person and having no property rights rights at all. So until we deal with slavery, that hole in our heart will still be there. And I'm hoping that this project will be one of many projects that'll take place that'll fill that for us. Hmm. I agree with you wholeheartedly about leaving the big hole in our heart, right? Until we are able to deal with slavery, which is one of the reasons why I do what I do and why I talk about it all the time, because it's something that people need to be educated on. Um, It's something that should not be forgotten because these were human beings treated like animals, like, you know, they were property. They were listed on wills and listed in wills and on inventories underneath a chair or a table or above a mule with a value attached to them. I mean, that's heartbreaking to think about. It's heartbreaking to see. And it's even more heartbreaking for folks to see that that's their third great-grandmother, fourth great-grandmother, that's fifth right. great-grandmother. That's right. You know, to see that. And I think one of the challenges that we have is when you don't have that part in your history, when you don't come from that resilience, that strength, but also that inhumane treatment, it's difficult to actually understand what it feels like and what it means to know that. Because I can't point, you know, my name's Kenyatta and people are like, are you from Kenya? I'm like, no, I'm from Detroit. But it doesn't mean, <laughs> you know, that like, I don't know enough about my own ancestry, even doing what I do to, you know, say, oh yes, I come exactly from this, you know, this spot, this place, this country, whatever. And without doing DNA, and that's that's a whole nother subject of yeah, just pretty subject. charts. But I think yeah. it's important to really talk about talk about slavery. And so with that, let's get into your family history. And But let me let, let me just say something. Oh, sure. I think your first first long chapter in your book uh is really powerful where you give your personal story about getting involved in learning about your history. And I think that that's, uh, first of all, it's very emotional. It's a very emotional and a very real read uh, because it's written well and you really hit all the points. And then what I love about it is you follow up with extensive resources. So folks just don't read your story and then feel good and go out and have, and go out and go to church, so-and-so. You follow up with here is how I got what I got and you lay it out there digitally you give them everything so I think the personal journey that that you put in your book says it all about why we really need to learn more about slavery well thank you very much for that and for and for reading my book um, oh yeah as well and so and, and to, to kind of dive into that a little bit, I had to add the personal story, right? Because for me, it was more than just providing you with resources, names, dates, and places, but understanding the journey that it takes. Absolutely. To find your ancestors and what that really means to Absolutely. you and to your family. So, yeah. but I want to get into your family history because okay. you're a Virginian and I'm, I'm also- Virginian like you. <laughs> yes. So I love to talk about Virginia research because uh, yeah. all roads lead back to Virginia, as we Amen. know. Uh, but when did you become, I mean, I know you grew up with with your family, uh, your, both your mom and your dad, well-educated, and you, you were kind of, you were involved in things. Yeah. But as part of that involvement um, and that activism, sort of when did you become interested in your family history? Well, my, you know, my mother's family were, you know, farmers in Southampton County, and I go back every summer. But my grandparents never wanted to talk about slavery. Uh, my grandfather was born in 1881, so that means that his father, and particularly his grandfather, was certainly born in bondage. 
and mm-hmm. I called him Papa. And when I got like 10, 11, 12, you know, and I'm getting, I'm beginning to put things together. I say, Papa, you know, was your father or grandfather a slave? And he'd say, well, I, I don't like to talk about that. So I didn't get anything until I realized when I was like 30 that mm-hmm. his great-grandfather was a white man. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. It came out from my uncle who just said it casually, who said, oh, yeah, Papa's, gr- Papa's grandfather was a white man. He knew his name. He knew the family. And I... I'd ask them questions like, well, well, you know, I'm ready to get my gun, right? Uh, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> uh, and I'd say, well, are they still here? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're still here. I see them all the time. So my uncle is looking at his relatives, you see, all living in Southampton County. No one wanted to talk about it. But um, I did have a brother, my late brother, my youngest brother, who was a folklorist, and he decided to do all this research for the family, particularly on my my father's side and my mother's side. And he found, uh, just by going into records, all these folks, and I think in like 1970, uh, we had a big celebration in Southampton County, Virginia, of a woman named Mariah Hines that he found. And what was unique about Mariah Hines was she was one of the people interviewed in the WPA interviews on slavery. And uh, I had gotten a book and there was a little piece in there about her, not much. And and so she became the sort of matriarch of this branch of the family, Mariah Hines. It was only uh, three months ago when uh, Dr. Jenny Williams that you talked about earlier, I was talking with her on, you know, on Zoom and I mentioned Mariah Hines and she said, oh yeah, I've got the whole thing right here. And within within 10 seconds, the entire interview was in my inbox. And when we read it, I sent it around to everyone in the family. We were just uh, emotionally bowled over by it because we heard about her, but we never knew. She was 102 living in Norfolk, Virginia. So that began to to stimulate us. And also, I guess the best thing, the most heroic and mythical is that my mother's maiden name is Turner Mm. from Southampton County. So I grew up with the fantasy that I was a direct descendant of Nat Turner. And I began to read everything about Nat Turner, anything I could find about Nat Turner, because in my mind, he was my great, great uncle or something. I could not prove that, but I was able to prove that he lived in the community where my ancestors must have known him. And that was good enough for me, having Mm -hmm. the name Turner. So that added to it. And then there was this magnificent book I read by a young sister named Vanessa Holden, H-O-L-D-E-N. Mm-hmm. She wrote a book called Surviving Southampton, African-American Women Resistance in Nat Turner's Community. And that book is only like a year old, a year and a half. And when I read it, I was bowled over because there was so much about Southampton County. I had no idea. I'm just reading a sliver, Nat Turner, and all that. But there was this whole community. And so her book opened up to me a whole, the whole community of Black people in Southampton County. And that's what we need when, when, when we're looking at, which, which you talk about uh, in the book, is that you're going for your individual ancestors, but what's going to open up to you is that whole community how they mm-hmm. lived, what they did, who they went to see, how they were buried, what did the old bits say? All of these things place our ancestors within the context of a community. That's mm-hmm. the redemptive power, the redemptive power of genealogy. Yeah, and I, I've, of course, love what you're saying because community is so important. And when we think yeah. about 
a lot of times I think about if you're doing research and you're looking in the 1870 census and you see a household of folks, right? And there's not a relationship to the head of household that doesn't come to 1880. But Ooh. the folks that are listed there, that are listed in that household, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are quote unquote blood related, but they could be part of, as you talk about, that community, right? It could have been. They're yeah, kin. they're kin. They're kin, yeah. right. They're and kin. that. I, I love that. And I love that you are able to, you know, even with all the work you've done, even with everything you've heard about your mom's family, everything you read about Nat Turner, that this one, that this one book recently published, one book, opened your eyes to a whole new perspective. That sure did. And I, I think that's so powerful because the important, you know, what's important in doing this research is putting your ancestors in historical context, right? That's right. They're part of history. And this is American history. So how did our ancestors is, fit into that? And, and you know, it's complicated. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. so much of our history is driven by narratives developed in Hollywood of what we hear. And, and when you, when you develop a narrative, you know, you, you have a good person, a bad person, you have an apex, you have a conclusion, but when you really get into life, it was very complicated, as complicated as life is today. I actually more complicated when I think about the lack of freedom, the lack of freedom that you had. One aspect of Nat Turner's um, uh, liberation struggle was that they passed a law in Virginia that you could no longer manumit your slaves. So you had a movement where people wanted to free their enslaved people. Now they pass a law, you know what? You can't free them. And those that were free, they packed them up and sent them to Liberia or sent them out of the state. The response was so strong that it tightened things even more. Now, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate that? And then you have Jenny Williams doing her research on on uh, slaves that were enslaved people that were put on boats. And when you're on a boat, you got to have a manifest. So a person has to have a name. They have to have, you know, some ca- light skin, dark, scar over right eye, about 110 pounds, five foot two. All of these things, when we had the internal slave trade, if you're selling a slave, an enslaved person from Virginia to New Orleans, you know, all you got to put in is person one. You don't have to put a name or anything. She goes on every ship that's sailing to New Orleans, and she has a name. She then goes and finds out where they are. She then finds out who bought them. Mm-hmm. And then she follows up more. And when the, when her project is finished, people in Upper South, in the Upper South, will be able to relate to their kin I use that broadly to their kin in the deep South. That's mm-hmm. never happened before. Right. You you look at these uh, these books and they say, I sold four slaves today, period. There's no more where they went, what they did, four were sold today. So all of this, you know, this genealogy, the, the data, the research, young African-Americans, serious scholars, all of this is helping to make enslavement an American institution, but one that'll give us emotional sustenance, I hope. Mm-hmm. And I think it will. And a lot of these projects, you know, Dr. Jenny Williams project yep. um, and what she's doing and, uh, you know, another project, um, which I believe Dr. Holden is part of, um, which is Freedom on the Move. Right. Um, related, yes. Related That's a good to, one. Yeah. The runaway um, slave ads, basically a uh, database for that. And they also have resources for K-12 as well. All of these different projects are kind of doing what I feel is the, is the, well, it's all important work, but the, the, the core of it is to reunite families that were torn apart by slavery. Correct. And that is, you know, from the upper being sold down the river from the upper south to the lower south, That's whether right. it was by coffle and you had to walk That's or right. whether it was on, you know, a ship. Right. It's being able and for and for us, for for black folks, for African-American, however you want to identify for us, this is core to understanding our story. It's core to our identity, because no matter how much it may make people feel uncomfortable to talk about slavery, sometimes it is. I've had that kind of, you know, response. It is part of 
who I am and who we are. Correct. Right. Because right. to not talk about it is for me to act as if my fifth great grandmother Mildred Payne doesn't exist or Martha right. Payne didn't exist or James right. Philip Sellers. I have to acknowledge all of those people who survived and went through that so that I could sit here in Santa Monica and, you know, be able to have this podcast and do what I do. So, you know, for the listeners, and we get a variety of folks from all over the world listening to the podcast, this is why it's so important. Because it is, it may not be part of your personal family history, right? Your personal genealogy, but it's part of ours and it is important and it's part of American history and understanding the impact that slavery had or has or what had on what we or what we're going through today. Right. And that's so important. Um, and I wanted to you motivated me, inspired me to make that point. Um, just listening um to you talk about that. But before um I'll pause and listen to you to see if you have a response, but I do want to get into, before we go, the story about the property that your brother purchased. Oh, um, that's, that's yes. really cool. Yeah. Uh, my brother retired from working, I guess, his entire career in for the federal government. And he was always the brother in the family that went back to the country, which is what we called it, every opportunity, every opportunity. And so he retired and he said, 15 years before he would retire, that he was going to buy some land near our farm because he wanted to be near the farm. So he acquires, I don't know, 100, he acquired about twice as much as the farm was, but he acquired some acres. And as he was, after he acquired it, he's looking at an old deed and he notices that it says, Urquhart, Urquhart, Colored Cemetery. And my brother looks at it and said, Erkard, we're Erkards. My my maternal grandmother's mother mm. was an Erkard. And and they were the Scottish enslavers from the Erkards. So he then goes to this particular spot on the land, and sure enough, there was this sunken space, which was a cemetery. They they didn't have the money to have a gravestone. And so we decided to have a big Urquhart who were always organized. We didn't know them that well. We we began to meet them. But they're a highly organized uh, branch of our family and every year they have a family reunion. We decided to have one on his property and you know he did the whole bit. He got the tent and people stayed in hotels. It was fabulous. But we had a ceremony a religious ceremony where we all stood around those unmarked those graves of relatives we did not know and the leader of the group uh, who was a cousin who's I guess my third cousin great guy sort of gave a talk and said a prayer and all the young people had a balloon a helium balloon Hmm. and when he said lift them up lord all the kids let the balloons and the balloons. This is like five thirty, six o'clock on a summer evening. It's just getting dusk. And the balloons went up to the sky and glistened in the evening sun. And I freaked out. I was like, as we say, in a, as we say, I was too through. I just <laughs> felt, I mean, I think we all were. We just all felt this deep emotional connection that I had never felt before, standing in front of the graves of our ancestors, most of whom were enslaved, we, we're sure. That was quite, uh, that was quite something. And, and that changed me because, you know, I'm sort of the, you know, I pride myself on being rational and intellectual and learning the history but I realized then that, you know, what I was missing, I was really missing that emotional component. And having that experience gave it to me. And it changed my conversation. I mean, the conversation I'm having with you is, is, is sure, we're talking about the history, but it's talking about the hole in our heart and the emotion. Being Having that experience gave me that. Now, people can get to it all kind of ways, but that was a way that it got to me. And you know what? I almost kissed my brother. I didn't, but I almost <laughs> kissed my brother. I was so happy. 
there's something about going to a cemetery yeah. and going to, at least for me, when I went to upstate New York and the unmarked graves of my third great grandparents. Wow. And kind of seeing that and knowing they were enslaved in Virginia and they moved upstate. And I was with my mom and she's sort of not into going to cemeteries, right? Yeah. I mean, I think as genealogists, we do it all the time. It's nothing. But um, that experience kind of changed me in a way to make me want to bridge that connection between the family in upstate New York and the family in Detroit that had been lost. My great grandmother died in um, 83 and 83, 84. And it was lost in a sense because we didn't go back. We really didn't travel there, but I felt, and I still feel it's my duty to, because I have cousins that are still in a small town and uh, very far upstate, you know, Rochester, uh, Buffalo area Wow, that are there. So I feel like the, as you said, you come about or come to this emotional process, right? Um, and doing this research in various ways. But once you have it, once you have that experience, once you have that connection, it does change you in yeah. a way that you didn't expect. And, um, you know, I, one thing for me is I'm not a big photo person, right? Like I don't have a bunch of photos hanging up in my apartment, I never really, when I worked in corporate, I never had photos on my desk. I was always like, listen, if I'm leaving this joint, I'm packing and I'm, right. you know, it's easy. Go, I'm going to take out go. what I can take in one, in one hit. I'm not yeah, coming exactly. back. I'm not coming back. And what is so funny for me is that when I went to visit my third cousin, um, one time's removed, uh, Marion Sellers Phillips. Yeah. Um, she, she's, 94 and she kind of had all these photos so she gave me some she's like my kids don't want them and all of this stuff and so I came back to Santa Monica and I actually have photos I have one photo that includes my um, maternal grandmother but it's my great-grandmother in the photo as well and all of these other folks right and then you know like great-grand aunts and uncles and stuff like that and it's very fascinating because I don't have one. I talk to my mother every day. I don't have one single photo of my mother in my apartment. Wow. I have a photo of anyone else in my family. But just having that, and I walk past it every day, it helps me remember them, remember their legacy, their contribution, and why I do what I do. So that's really kind of um, what inspires me. And I think the story you shared hopefully will inspire our listeners and others to have that emotional experience and to to take even what they what they find. It may be a photo, it may be something different. It may be, you know, um, a piece of art. It could be a painting. It could just be jewelry. It could be anything that has a connection right. Right. to your ancestor and to yeah. hold that dear because through that piece, that that object, right, you're kind of feeling them and you're able to to rest and tell and tell their story, which is the most important thing, I think, is telling these stories. So they're not forgotten. Well, my takeaway uh, from that conversation you had with that photographic lady in, in uh, Rhode Island or where mm-hmm. you, you had a podcast and she mm-hmm. she's a specialist in helping people understand photographs. Yes. Yeah. And when she started talking about all the information a photograph contains, I have a lot of, I have some old photographs in a box and I went and opened up the box and started looking at them. And, you know, I began to look at what are they wearing? Where is it? Uh, what's in the background? What's in the foreground? And it helped me look at a photograph of more than just trying to identify. Because normally when you families get together and you look at photographs, they say, now who's that? And who's that? And, and who's that? So you get so focused on who is the person that you kind of forget all the other information mm-hmm. that the photograph can tell you about their community and their context. That was my takeaway from that podcast. Absolutely. And that was yeah. with Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, that was um, good. Yeah, I and you make an excellent point about photographs and and looking at them beyond as she does um in the podcast as well. Yeah. Yeah. So one last question for okay. you, sort of, you know, as it comes to your career and, you know, what you're doing and your legacy, sort of what's next for you? What's next well, in, in kind of your trajectory? Well, I, 
one of the things that I've done is I've I've deassessed my um, library. Uh, I've got several books going up for auction at Freeman's, which is an auction house. I have a firm called Ivy Books, who is you know, you know, selling a lot of first editions that I have because I I wanted to deassess all the things that I've accumulated so I can be free to go into the next level. Right now I'm burdened with, you know, 3,000 books and all these things, but it's time. But what I'm focusing on now is working to get the materials that secondary school teachers need to teach the transatlantic slave trade. And I'm working with the Museum of the American Revolution and Oxford University on um, putting together a website uh, that can be a resource for these teachers. And if we can get that done over the next 12 months, that'll be a big game changer for people teaching uh, the transatlantic slave trade. They're our first line of defense. Everything mm -hmm. you learn outside the home, I mean, I understand about digital and everything, but structurally, what you learn, you learn in school. So if we, can, if we can provide resources to help teachers, then I think that will be a next turn for me. Great. Well, we definitely need those resources. And um, most of what I learned about slavery, transatlantic slave trade, domestic slave trade, it has all come from my work and curiosity about my own family history. Exactly. Um, not something that I learned in school. So I probably wouldn't got, would have gotten started in genealogy earlier <laughs> if I had that information, I think. Um, but it wasn't available when you were at, did you go to Cass or one of those high schools in Detroit? I did. I graduated from Cass. Yes. There you go. That's <laughs> a, now there's a good school. I've got lots of friends, but I don't think they taught it. No, they did it. They did it. So I, yeah. Um, but I'm glad that you're working towards that. And yeah. I feel it's, it's important, more important now than ever to, to really make sure the, the next generation understands this, yeah. have yeah. the, has the you know, information and access to resources to learn more about it. Terrific. Terrific. Right. Well, thank you so much. This has thank been a, you. this has been a real joy to, to really like, meet someone on the same plane and really have a decent <laughs> conversation. Yeah, I like this that. Great. Yeah, I, I yeah. definitely, I, I loved, you know, just learning more about your work, your background you. um, and, you know, being a Virginian and Amen. all of that. Amen. And I look forward to seeing what you do, uh, you know, moving forward. Thank you. I will keep in touch. All right. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle Kenyatta.Berry, on Facebook at facebook.com slash KenyattaDB, and on Twitter at KenyattaDB. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at KenyattaBerry.com. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests on Conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Barry.